Thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's, uh, welcome to all of you, but if it's your first Sunday, a special welcome to you. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, um, along with uh, Spencer. Actually, Chris was doing announcements, wasn't he? So uh, Chris, one of our elders uh, as well, but along with Spence, one of the pastors here. Glad you guys are with us. Uh, we, as Mark was saying, are in the middle, kind of not middle, I guess, yet, but um, we're getting into it now, of a series in Genesis. A Genesis means beginnings, uh, the first book of the Bible, first book of the Old Testament. Been in that for um, a few months already, and uh, making some headway. We're picking up speed. We, uh, it took us a while to get through the first couple of, uh, actually, first few chapters, but now we're doing uh, a chapter a week, and actually this week we're going to do uh, three chapters. I've never done that in 10 years, so hope you brought a lunch, because we're going to be here for a long time. No, not quite, but we are going to summarize, we're going to read most of it, summarize some of it for the sake of time, but we are going to preach through three chapters of the Bible, uh, Genesis 6, 7, and 8, most of 8. We actually, there will be a part two to this next week, the latter half of 8 is uh, kind of um, its own thing, so we'll preach that next week. So 6, 5 to 8, 19, abridged uh, will be... Um, will be today, and the, the topic is Noah his, uh, and his family, but we'll talk about him. The ark, uh, this big boat God commanded him to build, and the flood. Uh, it's a, one of the more uh, well-known stories of Genesis, I, I would think, um, I don't know for sure, but if you guys uh, have never heard about it before, we'll, we'll explain a lot of it uh, as we go. If you've never read the account, I'm guessing that's maybe more common for some of you. You've heard about it, but haven't read, actually read the biblical account before, so today will be um, good for you in that regard, or a good reminder if you, if you have before. Uh, but this worldwide flood uh, being that big thing that uh, God sends to blot out uh, all life except Noah and uh, seven others. So um, if Genesis is new, uh, to catch up to speed, the first three, we're in chapter uh, uh, six today, seven and eight mostly. Um, the first few chapters, especially the first two and the, and the third chapter, are pretty key uh, to understanding the Bible. Uh, we talked a lot, of, a lot lately about uh, understanding how sin uh, came into the world, how important that is. Um, and so after making the earth uh, and the universe and everything in it, God, in the second chapter, end of first chapter, beginning, and for most of the second chapter, creates, it's this account of how he makes humankind, the pinnacle of his creation, the gardeners of his land, you could say, uh, but as the story goes, they rebel against him, we with them, uh, wanting to become more like him, even though they're already in his image. They've been given so much, they wanted more, and it was a rebellion incited by Satan, this kind of chief archangel that became the chief demon, and a third of the angels with him led, led and staged this rebellion against God out of jealousy of his power and lured humanity um, with them. And so it was this call to live independently from God. And so what happened is sin, an objective and a subjective sense or side to sin ensued. And so I want to remind you guys of what that means. There's, uh, there's this objective sense to sin in that it's something that we choose. It's in that sense outside of us. Uh, sin originally was not doing something we'd label uh, as, you know, all that bad. Or I guess we would, but it's not like Satan said, Adam and Eve, go murder somebody, you know, or go um, in a very obvious way, be arrogant or lie a ton or something like that. He said, reach for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of morality, but a godless form of it uh, that was just as bad as doing uh, any godless act we can think of. It was, it was, in that sense, setting themselves up on the throne of their own little mini kingdom and their own little mini universe. And so it was a choice to go our own way, but what that did is it subjectively corrupted the heart as well. So sin is understood on both sides of it. It's, it's ultimately going our own way, but it corrupts the heart. It makes us arrogant, and that leads to all kinds of godless acts. Uh, things like, in, just in the few first chapters, we've seen blame shifting and pride and carelessness and murder, uh, even within a family, a brother murdering another brother, uh, death, uh, 
and then into this passage as well, a lot more arrogance and sexual sin and uh, just more of the same. And so there's that corruption of the heart that, uh, that came after it. And so uh, what follows then from these first few chapters is this ongoing story. It's going to really continue through the whole of Genesis in some ways. Uh, well, the whole Bible, I guess, in a lot of ways. But Genesis is going to keep showing this downward spiral of sin, how things keep getting worse for humanity. Uh, and as we'll see today, this, this uh, really epic account, this story of how God decreates, how he uncreates the world. He kind of reverses what it actually says. He doesn't just blot out life. He destroys the earth with people. God is going to destroy the earth as well by uh, flooding it. And so he's, he's decreating, he's destroying, he's blotting out but not before giving some people a way of escape. And so I, we've already seen this, this juxtaposition, this, this close contrast between uh, darkness and light in the very beginning, even before sin comes into the world. And, and we've seen bad things occur, this, this fall away from God happen, but God stays strangely committed to creation at the same time and speak and embody grace right alongside it. And this story is not going to be an exception. And we're going to see a lot more patterns of this this story actually is the first of a pattern of stories like it that fill the Old Testament. So if you understand this one well, and if you're reading cover to cover, you don't have to, but if you're reading cover to cover, you would see this come up a lot uh, just uh, even in this book. So we'll revisit a lot of these themes as the series, the series goes on. But so just have that general idea in mind. Uh, God is uh, destroying the world and life because of rampant sin. He's been patient, but his patient doesn't, patience doesn't last forever. But there, he makes a way of escape for some. And so there's hope for uh, sinful humanity, sinful people like us uh, at, at the same time. So let's read it. Uh, Genesis 6-5 all the way to 8-19 abridged. I'll skip a few places. Probably best to follow along on screen because if you're in your Bibles, I'll be skipping around a little bit, but you're obviously welcome to do that too if you would like. Uh, 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I had determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, which, stop there for a second, that's about 450 feet, so football field and a half. Uh, it's breadth 50 cubits and it's height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But... I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark, 
them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The water increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth. And so pause there for a second. If you're keeping track, that's almost a year he was in the ark. So uh, the, the flood water, the flood itself proper was a 40 days and 40 nights thing, uh, but the waters prevailed a lot longer than that. So he's basically on the ark for a year, almost uh, a year. Verse 13, And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your son and your son's wives with you. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. All right, so that is the biblical account of Noah and the flood that God sent to cover the whole earth and destroy all life. Uh, today what we're going to do is, uh, like, we, like we normally do with narrative like this and certainly with any type of genre of scripture, is look at the theological angle particularly of the accounts. Uh, there, there's much to say about geological evidence that supports that this flood actually happened, a global flood of, of this portion uh, actually happened. And there's corroborative evidence, historical evidence from other ancient Near Eastern cultures that supports that the event happened as well. All interesting stuff that we'd love to talk to you more about sometime if you'd like. But what's most important is what God is saying to us through the story. It's always the most important thing, right? It's not, this is actually about us in some ways. It's for us and for our benefit. Uh, and if we, uh, if, if we fail to look at that angle, we've uh, really, uh, honestly, interpretationally, we've uh, fallen flat in our face. And so, uh, that's the most sacramental thing to do. So we're going to do that today. A couple of initial comments, though, here. Um, <clears throat> last week, Spencer mentioned Noah and showed uh, this one picture we do have of Noah in terms of what he looked like. And I, I wanted to mention, I was talking to my community group about this a little bit last week. I don't know if you guys have seen this movie or not. Um, which, when did this come out? Was it like a three, three years ago, roughly? Or I think we saw it two years ago, right? Alitha, was it two summers ago? We watched it with uh, some of her family. And it was a, um, it's a very 
uh, interesting cinematic experience for me. <laughs> uh, and the, the artistic side of me really liked a lot of it, uh, the visual elements and, um, and so forth. The theological, the biblicist side of me pulled my hair out uh, a little bit. But then with that said, though, they, you know, there was, well, was a lot of it at the end. There's environmentalist agenda, not to wreck it for you, but there's this agenda of environmentalism and, um, and so forth. And you know, whenever a movie says, this is the moral of the story. This is the point of the story. And they totally get it wrong. You're like, ah, you know. But if you, if, if you go in and it's one thing to portray it, right, differently and take artistic license, but to say this is the point, blank, and fill it in and get it wrong, which they kind of do. Um, but if you go in knowing he's not trying to kind of, you know, this isn't like, he's not trying to just put, this is the, the visual Bible or something, you know, like that. they have that kind of stuff out there. It's not that, then, um, you know, you'll, I think, get more out of it. But one thing I did appreciate, though, about this, you know, is I, you know, because I, even though I know, or I knew I wasn't trying to be a faithful biblical account of the story necessarily, uh, is, is I was watching the movie against the backdrop of, of movies like Evan Almighty. You guys know what that movie is? Steve Carell, it's like the sequel to Bruce Almighty. Anyway, it's a Noah accounts. It's pretty entertaining, but it's terrible. And, and so, it, but, you know, and as a parent, uh, having three kids, you know, and having years now of um, kids' board books, you know, that sanitize the story from, like, every, and it's a kid's book, I know, but every angle imaginable that, and I've actually thrown out some of these, I never do this, I don't like throwing books away, but I've, I've actually thrown Noah's books away, <laughs> like, there's just no way I'm going to read this again to my kids. For some reason, this, it's the Noah story, I don't know what it is, I mean, I, I, kids' books sanitize a lot about the Bible, but the Noah story just gets butchered, you know, just absolutely butchered, in, uh, in kids' books. Um, it, it actually, a lot of kids' books make me think of, um, I think they portray Noah as kind of like the enchanted princess. You guys know the movie Enchanted? Have you seen this movie? Where she's kind of fluttering around and like singing out the window and all the animals come to her and help her clean the apartment. I, it, it, the books kind of like make me think Noah's doing that. Let's just go and la 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 la, you know, and let's just go... <laughs> let's make the ark, and it's going to rain soon. It's going to be so great, and let's build it together. It's, it's just such a happy day, and it's sun, the sun is out. The sun is out, and we're all okay, you know, and I don't know. It's, that's kind of what I think of, but so anyway, if that's the backdrop, if that's kind of, if, that, if that's your exposure and you know better, seeing this attempt, um, though frustrating in parts, was actually, um, I actually liked it. I, I think, you know, it, it contained wrath. It contained judgment. It, it contained horror, sin, and chaos. I mean, we're talking ripping babies out of mom's arms uh, to both be drowned by the droves. Uh, we're talking judgment at the highest level. We're talking worldwide catastrophe, uh, chaos, people screaming for their lives. Uh, it, it's, you know, this is a very, 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 very dark story. You can't sanitize it. In the Bible, like, it's not like this is the only one, right? I mean, if, well, if you know the scriptures, there's a lot of them, uh, very dark. So it's good just to read it. You know, if you've got the kid's board book perspective or whatever, or, or Evan Almighty, I think at the end of Evan Almighty, it says, uh, if you've seen that, the God figure, the Morgan Freeman character, he's kind of an interesting God. Uh, he's, in, he's in both those movies, but he says, yeah, and he's kind of just kind of kicking it with uh, Steve Carell and says, yeah, people get the, the Noah's story wrong. You know, it's, I'm paraphrasing, but people think it's all about wrath and stuff, but you know, it's not. It's, it's about, you know, people kind of coming alongside each other in life, you know, entering the ark two by twos, 
and just getting along. It's about reconciliation. You guys know what, you guys know what I'm talking about? Have you seen this? Like, oh my gosh. So anyway, uh, it's about, but what, what's, so it's, it's helpful to read. We just read, this is actually the biblical account. This is, this is, what, this is what actually happened millennia ago. This is how God chose to write it down through the hand of Moses. Wrath, judgment, horror, sin, chaos, darkness, hopelessness. And yet what this movie does too, I think, well, is amidst all of that craziness, he, uh, there's, there's hope portrayed. You see glimpses of the forgiveness of God, the, gra- the grace and the patience of God. You see him make a way of escape for people. And I, I think that in terms of like Hollywood taking an attempt at it, I think it was a smashing success, you know. And I know, but, but there's a lot of junk in it too, but a smashing success. Um, so not necessarily endorsing it or anything, but maybe, I don't, you, maybe you'd like it, you should see it. But Aletha and I enjoyed watching it with uh, her family, um, a couple of whom we're not sure if they're even believers yet. And so it's kind of a neat, kind of nuanced thing to talk about and just like, yeah, they left this out, I wonder why, and, you know, other stuff and just kind of share the gospel anyway, so. All right, so here's what I want to do. I want to um, look at this from two angles, the, the macro big picture, the macro point, and the micro points, uh, more the details of this. And, and the macro point will be, uh, what is this story really trying to say to us? So just kind of, kind of lay down some cards, some biblical cards, and say, the Bible itself tells us what this means. It doesn't always do that. So sometimes we're grabbing at straws or guessing a little bit more, trying to piece together things a little bit more indirectly. We do not have to do this with this story. We do not. Never again for your life guess what this is about. If you're trying to be a biblicist, I mean, you know, I guess I'm not, I shouldn't take that for granted. If you're not a biblical thinker or you don't want to be, it can mean whatever you want it to mean. <laughs> it can mean whatever you want. It, it, you determine the meaning if you want. But if you want God to determine the meaning, and he tells us that. He gives us the lens in, um, in the, the scriptures. So, We'll talk about that, how should we read it in the macro, and then come back and run one more fine-tooth comb across the whole thing and get some more details with that interpretational paradigm in place. Does that make sense? So get the interpretational paradigm, how do we read it, then take that paradigm, comb it over one more time, and get some micro points that tell us then uh, more about our experience in Christ and, and so forth. So the macro point here is that this story is a redemptive historical analogy, the first of many in the Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.6 in the New Testament says about a, a similar event, the Exodus. A different event happens later to Israel when they escape from Egypt uh, under the hand of Pharaoh, uh, through, uh, or by Moses, rather. 1 Corinthians 10.6 says to Christians, to the church, to people like us, now these things, the Exodus events, Old Testament judgment and salvation stories, things like the, the flood narrative that we just read, these things took place as examples for us, the church, that we might not desire evil as they did. These things took place as examples for us. And by example, it means not just that there's a lesson in it, uh, but that the events themselves are typical or foreshadowing of New Testament, later New Testament realities. And so Jesus here is helpful here, he gets more explicit. He says in Matthew 24, 36 to 39, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Speaking of himself. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. 
so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so there's a connection here uh, that, that's made. And the story of Noah has uh, really all the elements of the gospel narrative that we might be a little bit more, some of us might be a little bit more familiar with uh, in terms of what salvation is, how God saves through his son now. This story has all the elements just in a foreshadowing typical kind of way. It has God, it has people, it has sin and rebellion, it has judgment, and it has a way of escape. If you're, if you're talking to someone about the gospel, if you're sharing the gospel with a non-Christian, these are the main elements you would include. And it has all of them. And 1 Corinthians 10 uh, helps us here, and so does Jesus, by likening what he's about, the covenant he's coming to establish in the world, how he's coming to save uh, with what, ha- what God did back here with, uh, with Noah. And so the connection, then, to be more, more explicit here is, and I think I have a slide, or yeah, here in yellow, uh, like God saved Noah and his family by grace through their faith from the flood, so does God save his church by grace through their faith from their sin and the flood of his coming wrath. In this, uh, Noah is and his family are a lot like the church, and the ark is a lot like, like Jesus. So, so that's the macro points, and we'll, we'll fill in some, some of the gaps here, uh, but uh, within this greater fr- interpretational framework then, Genesis 6-8, tells us about our experience because we're the church or we're considering becoming a part of the church, maybe for some of you if you're in that place. And Jesus is uh, in history now, not that he wasn't back then, but he came into the world uh, in, in this era. We're in the New Testament now, uh, which fulfills the old. It completes it. It retells that story just in a sp- more spiritual, uh, climax kind of way. So now some of the micro points. So again, if that's the broad thing, if that's you know, if you know that and you go back, and I actually encourage you guys to do this, go back and read the story, the parts even I left out, um, with that comb, and just kind of comb it over, and, and ask that, well, if this is true, if we're like Noah, uh, if God never changes, if he's the same there as he is today, what does that teach us about sin, and salvation, and the gospel, and what it means, what, where's the warning for us? I mean, otherwise, it's at best, a theological academic exercise, at best, and probably not even that. It won't mean anything to us. Uh, it'll just be like something we can kind of store up there in the file cabinet of our mind and say, well, I, I met, you know, Bible quiz stuff or something, like I memorized who Joseph, or Noah's uh, sons were or something, and how many people are on the ark and all this data, but it's, it's data for the sake of theology. It's not just data. It's not just information. It's, it's story narrative for the sake of theology and for us, not just, not just story. So then, if that's the macro, if that's the interpretational paradigm, the big picture, this is what it means, this is how it points ahead to Jesus and the church and us and in all of that. Jesus is the new ark. He gives us a way of escape from coming judgment by dying for our sins. Then the micro points then can, can undergird that and tell us and give us some, as we twist the diamond a bit in the light. So we already have the diamond. We kind of know what it means, but as we twist it a bit, we can get some, uh, some additional glimpses into the character of God and uh, sin in us and, and everything. So let's do that now. The micropoints. Shedding light on details, uh, the details of our salvation experience in Christ. All right, first thing is God hates sin, clearly. Uh, f- from, again, almost every angle imaginable here, God hates sin. Uh, in verse 3, we didn't read this in the reading earlier, but he says, my spirit shall not abide or contend with, uh, some translations have that, uh, with man forever. His patience does run out, as it rightly should. Um, Genesis 6, 5 to 6, though, we did read, it says, I mean, listen to this, 
This is what God's seen when he looks into the world. He saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So again, if you apply this idea, this is paradigmatic of now, then that was true then, but this this is also true right now. God is patient, but his patience won't last forever. He's full of wrath against sin. He's not cruel, but he's wrathful. Those are different things. God is not cruel. God is not cruel, but he's rightly wrathful against sin. And as human beings, we, there's actually a, a really good news side of that. The, the idea that God destroys evil, including evil beings, is really, really, really good news. If there was a God out there who couldn't give a rip about evil, bad news. If he didn't do something about it, bad news. And we get a glimpse of this whenever we see like the hero of the story bring resolution at the end, right? When there's an injustice that's made right. And that, that, that feeling you get in your heart when you say, yes. Or when you want there to be revenge or vengeance. We all share this. We all want this. This is good news. And, and God says, I am like that. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, he says. So to the church, he says, don't you repay, but you be patient. Uh, vengeance is mine, and, and vengeance is, is coming. We live in this era of patience now and passing over of sin, but the end is coming. So there's a lot of good news to that. But the, the bad news is, we're the ones who are, who are unjust. We're the ones who are unjust. We're the ones who are... Actually, when you read something like this, anytime you read narrative in the Bible, when you read someone uh, getting drowned, getting judged by God, and they say, why? Make it a mirror. Do not point the finger. Do not compare. Don't say that's them, but not me. I mean, look at the list here. We skipped over some things, but look at what specifically is bringing God to this point of bringing a flood around the world, or over the world. It, it says things like violence, and that's in the heart, not just with the hands. Uh, sexual sin, we didn't read that in the first part of 6, but there's a type of wicked intermarrying going on that precedes the flood. Sexual sin, going our own way, grabbing for what we want. Just wickedness. <laughs> it's kind of like sometimes there's lists of sins in the New Testament, and it says things like, you know, adultery and murder and um, all this stuff. And it gets to this place of saying, oh, and dishonoring your parents. Oh, <laughs> you know? So, like, if you're, if you're kind of checking the box, like, oh, yeah, you know, or just kind of generally um, evil intent, you know, or having a little bit of an impure heart. Yeah, I guess I, you know what I mean? So th- this, this list is, you could, you could say, it's not right to say, but you could say I'm not a violent person, but you are in the heart. I am. If you've ever hated someone, Jesus says, you've murdered them in your heart. So anyway, violent sexual sin, going our own way, wickedness generally, intending evil, corrupted hearts. If that's, if that's a, score, a scorecard or a poor card for us, guys, extremely bad news. Extremely bad news. So, I mean, if, if we're there, we face the same judgment. We're not, we're not in the ark based on morality. We're certainly not in the ark based on based on, um, on morality. So it paints this really bleak picture. God sees everyone in, in all their thoughts, all the intentions of their heart are only evil continually, and that's true today as well. But then, right when all seems lost, 
this classic God, classic biblical narrative, uh, he, God yet again gives hope. Yet again uh, glimpses hope. He, he shines a, a little bit of a light in the dark cave so that we might flock to it. And that looks like uh, pretty much right away. It's, it's halfway through chapter 6. You know, we don't read much before this. Uh, pretty much right away, God identifies a man, Noah, and his family to be spared the flood. Mostly Noah, though. He kind of represents the family, so, which is kind of cool in its own right. But these eight people, so he has three sons. They all have wives. So there's eight people that are, are, um, are spared, which... I mean, even in and of itself, and there's a lot more to the story, but even if you just see that, I mean, narratively, this is meant to evoke a, thank God that happened. Or maybe it's a, what's going on? I thought everyone had evil intent from their heart continually. That includes Noah. So why is he saved? We'll, we'll come back to that a little bit later more explicitly. Uh, there is some, there's a tension there, but but maybe he, if he can escape, maybe the question is this, if he can escape, well, can others too? So, um, but first, I, I just simply want you to note the break in the pattern of things being extremely dark to a glimmer of light for seemingly no reason at all. You know, Noah being chosen here is kind of a mystery. Uh, there are some explanations as to why, but it's, it's, it's more of a mystery. Kind of like Jesus saying in the New Testament, when someone's saved, it's kind of like the wind blowing where you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. The wind just kind of blows. Jesus says that's the Spirit, and that's how someone's saved. Uh, there, there's no real rhyme or reason necessarily. It's just the Spirit moves and saves and chooses and identifies. Uh, it's the same thing. It's really the same thing here with, with uh, our salvation as well. Or you can see it like this. All are evil, yet some evil ones are spared. So if you ask, if you ask how, if, if that's kind of the you know, the, the formula, all are evil, yet some evil ones are spared, and you ask how, you know, or, you know, all do evil, yet some are saved, so how are they saved? You know, there, there must be a different way besides doing good, because no one, this is a narrative thing here, so it's a little bit, it's not explicit. In Romans 3, it says clearly, no one does good. No one is righteous. No one seeks for God. And so it's, it's a prepositional complement to this narrative. So again, if that's the tension, all are evil, no one seeks for God, yet some are saved, we have to say there must be another way to get in besides doing good because no one does good. I'll do evil. There has to be a third way, another way, besides, uh, besides morality. I'll, let, I'll just let that hang there for a second, and I'll come back to that. For now, though, just note the, the break in the pattern all are evil, yet Noah, for some, for some crazy reason, is being uh, chosen here to get in. All right. Then we see God really go to work. So a few more things here, micro points. Uh, and this is a big one, broad, but I'll explain it. God is the one, number three, God is the one who instructs the building of the ark. Genesis 6.14, God commands Noah Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. So, Noah does not, in other words, um, you know, catch wind of this coming storm and then build the ark himself. God tells him to build it. Right? It's, and it's the same with you and me. Uh, no one figures out salvation on their own. It's never happened. 
You know, we, we don't catch wind of someone or, you know, some coming judgment and figure out how to manufacture an ark on our own. God finds us and tells us how to be saved. Just like back here. Again, remember guys, this, this is paradigmatic of our reality. What God is doing here, and the Bible says God never changes, so he's going to do the same thing later in the New Testament. It's the same way. Like God identified Noah and said, this is how you're going to be saved. That's what he does now to us. He finds us and he says, this is how. This is how you build the new ark, essentially. This is how you withstand the flood. It's amazing grace. Uh, and, he, and he tells us specifically then that it's through his son's bloody death on a cross. And so, and, and Noah, back to Noah, Noah couldn't take credit for the ark either, right? He couldn't boast in it. God was the architect. God was the engineer. It was God's idea. Just like no one can take, none of us can take credit for our salvation. We're saved by grace, not by works. The cross was his idea. Us understanding the cross was his idea. Us getting on the ark of the cross, the ark of salvation, which is Christ, his idea, his command, his invitation, his moving, his identification of us. Saved by grace. See how it's all God here? And we see more. And even the fact that the, the ark's construction is so precise. Do you ever wonder that? It's the same thing with the temple later in the story, which we won't talk about today, but it's so crazy precise. Why not 310 cubits? You ever wonder that? Or, you know, why can't it be more than 30 cubits high, like 31? 300 cubits long, three decks, a roof, a door a certain size. Very precise and other things. Very, very precise. What, what this, and what this demonstrates to us then narratively and reminds us of is that the dimensions of how God saves, the dimensions of how God saves elsewhere through his son are very, very precise as well. And that salvation is not ambiguous for the Christian or vague or general. It's very concrete, very, very specific. So God doesn't say to Noah, just build a boat. And he doesn't say to us in the New Testament, just be saved. He gets very specific with how that looks. He says, specifically build an ark this way, just like he says, specifically believe in my son and you will be saved. The son who will hang on a cross for you and who will be raised three days later. So faith's not ambiguous. It wasn't for Noah. You know, Noah's not wondering how he's going to, he knows exactly how he's going to be saved. It's specifically and only forever that boat. Only one way to be saved. In both stories, there's only one way. It's the ark, and later in the story, it's Jesus. Acts 4.12 says, there's only one name under heaven by which man can be saved, the man Christ Jesus. And in John 14.6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's exclusive. There's not many ways here. In the narrative, God's not saying, well, the Hindus will figure out a different way on their own. I'm just concerned about these pre-Hebrews. Or some of you will climb a mountain that will be tall enough. You can withstand, it, withstand the flood that way. It's just global. There's only one way to be saved. It's the ark. It's the same way, paradigmatically, in um, the New Testament here. All right, so, so God is instructing the building of the ark. He is graciously uh, telling him how to be saved. He didn't have to do this. He's lovingly doing it, and he's getting very precise to show us that Salvation is very specific, uh, not vague. Also, you see, this is kind of related, but I made it a separate point. Uh, you see later that in uh, chapter 7, verse 16, 
that God shuts them in. It said, it's a great verse. After he makes it all and the, it's just about to happen, they get in and, and the Lord is there. And because if, if you think about it, they can't, this isn't like, um, they have no kind of, you know, large, they, they can't pitch the outside of the door themselves. So they had, they, God said, put pitch on both sides. They, once they're in, they can't put the pitch. They can't seal it up. The boat would leak. So God had to shut it uh, from the outside and put pitch around uh, the door frame and probably on top of that as well to seal them in completely. Now, narratively, uh, this is also, I mean, it's, this is akin to what we've been talking about. It's, it's very important here for Noah not to shut the door himself. God is, I think, this is by design. Uh, it, it's this, because it's the same with us later in the story. Uh, Jesus shuts us in. We don't do it ourselves. It, it's, it, he's the ultimate assurance, the ultimate expression of God doing everything he can to ensure that we withstand the flood of his coming wrath. I mean, the, 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 the um, extent to which God is intimately involved here is crazy. And it, it's, a, it's interesting and amazing in this story, but again, if you guys put yourself in that ark, and you are, we have to by faith believe. This is, we can't see the ark right now because it's not like an ark, but there is such a thing as the boundaries of the church of God, and we're walled in by the blood of Christ. We're contained by him. We're saved by him. We're protected by him. It's the same thing. So if it's true, then this is saying God has shut you in to Christ. There's a verse in Ephesians 1.13 that says, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing that we will inherit the new earth and finish the race that we started in faith later on. So he's sealed us, like he sealed the ark, he's sealed us with the Holy Spirit of God. He ensures that we'll finish. It's it's protective, it's loving. Again, God didn't have to do this, but he's doing this, he did this for no, he's doing this for us right now if we're in this ark. We believe the gospel we believe Jesus died for our sins. He's shutting us in. Did anybody die in that ark? Did anybody die? Did anybody not make it out that year? Did he lose one? Then we can't say theologically. It's so, it's just so linked with our experience in Christ. We cannot say that God starts to save some, but then it never finishes it. We cannot lose our salvation. Because he gives it. This is actually one of the strongest arguments you get in the Bible, I think. For the fact that we cannot lose what God gives. No one, no one gets on the ark and doesn't make it out. It's incredibly good news, you guys. It's incredibly loving that God is this intimately involved. That he's pitching that door. And actually, I didn't say this first service. I just thought it was mid-service, so you guys get this too. Um, God, it, it, you know, if this is a person pitching this door... What would happen to that person? They die, right? Now, God is not actually dying here, but I think he is saying, I'm, it's, it's a whisper that one day I will lay down my life so that you will survive the flood. God is acting like a sacrificial, final, I'll get you in, but I'll die kind of thing. Or like, you know, the guy in the movies who stays behind to fight the zombies so everyone else can get out the house, you know, or something. It's like that guy. He's, he's saying with his actions, whispering, I'll take the flood for you. I'm going to seal you in. You'll make it. I won't. But you're almost more important than I am. Nothing explains these actions except love. 
I, I challenge you to think of anything else besides love that explains what God is doing here. Is he obligated? Does he have to? The only thing that explains this intimate involvement with Noah and his family is he just loves them. He wants to save them. He's intimately involved with every aspect of their salvation, down to the cubit, down to the inch. And he is for you guys as well. And me. So when God shuts them in, it's a guarantee, as John 6 says here, that he will never, it's love, it's protective, he will never lose. Uh, and actually, this is helpful. This is the will of him, God, who sent me, Jesus speaking, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. None are lost. All get in by faith and all are kept. These are the types of things we have to hold on to, and I think they're in the Bible because they're true, but they're in the Bible because God knows we're not going to believe it someday. We're going to um, deny his love. We're going to forget. We're going to sin so much we think we've jumped out of the boat and there's no second chance. You're not on the deck. You're sealed in. Once you're saved, you can't be unsaved because you've been given salvation. You've been identified for it. You didn't find it. You didn't build the ark yourself and, and, and go, oh, shoot, I forgot that one rafter, and you die, you know? I forgot that one square foot of pitch, and the thing leaks out in the first hour, and you die. But that's not, God, God designs it perfectly. God seals it in perfectly. And so the, the fifth thing here is, and you see this play out in this one too, is God remembers Noah amidst the storm in 8.1. Which I, I like this element because um, this could almost been its own sermon, but I'll, so I'll just mention this quick. But uh, is that if this is if this is indicative, this whole thing, this, the flood of our salvation experience in Christ, then Noah and family's time on the boat in the storm could be seen in some ways as what life is like as a Christian. You guys see that? So entering the ark would be like conversion. Time on the boat is kind of like the Christian life. And then when the floodwaters recede and God makes the new earth and gets us off on dry land, is kind of like what the future holds uh, that we eagerly wait for, right? And so time on the boat is like now, which is not really a Caribbean cruise. You know? <laughs> you know? Like if you, you, got, you got to get rid of the board books, right? So, um, I mean, it's, this would have been scary for Noah and his family. It would have been nauseating. There are probably people puking all over the place, animals and people. Dark. Everything's wet. Um, Noah probably fought with his wife a lot, you know, uh, or whatever. I mean, just things like that. There would have been times they doubted if they'd survive, when God would have been silent, and when they had a hard time trusting in him. All these things are virtually guaranteed that that's happening for that year. Isn't that descriptive of the Christian life? It's not a Caribbean cruise. It's tumultuous. There's leaks in our boats. There's, you know, where there's fights. There's nauseating physically and spiritually times uh, for us. Times we don't hear from God. Times we feel distant from him. Times we doubt if we're going to make it. But here's the gospel. God remembered Noah. See what he's like? Look what he's like. God remembers us in that place. He's remembering you guys right now. Not make an ark yourself and have fun storming the castle. We'll see you in a few millennia. He's there. 
He's there. He remembers us. They're being saved nonetheless, even if they doubt a bit, even when they're puking. He's the active party. In regards to salvation, as we're being saved, as we start to notice a leak in the boat of our faith, God remembers us. And he will eventually bring us all safely through on dry land. Philippians 1.6 says, I'm sure of this, I'm confident, I know this for a fact, that he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. I am sure of this, he who got you on the ark will bring you out on dry land in less than a year. Guaranteed. And it happened. These are the truths that tell us about God's grace, how much he's at work saving us, how much he wants to save and what we have to hold on to when we start to doubt, when we sin, when we disbelieve, when we start to think it's about what we do. Rest on Philippians 1.6 prepositionally and Genesis 6-8 to narratively. They say the same thing. All right, so here's another question then. If, if God, uh, the last of these micro things... Um, We've said this, if, if God is doing everything, what was Noah's responsibility? Or why, why Noah? Why was he favored? There's that tension of he's part of the problem of God bringing the flood upon the earth. He's part of the problem. Why him? He was called righteous, but just before God said everyone, every's heart, everyone's heart is only evil, only evil continually. Well, in what sense is he righteous then? How is he blameless? Like, who is this guy? So if God's doing everything, what was Noah's responsibility? Why was he chosen? I'll, I'll make this non-rhetorical because it's come up so much in Genesis already. Not to put you guys in the spot here, but what, what do you think? What do we know about the rest of the story that, tells, that speaks into his heart here now? Who is Noah? Why was he chosen? faith faith alone gloriously faith has to be if you weren't here this past couple of weeks we've seen how there's this theological math that weaves its way all throughout the scriptures this formula the righteous live by faith the righteous live by faith the righteous live by faith old and new testaments and so what you have then in the new testament you have people uh, in hebrews reading back these stories and inserting faith where it doesn't say faith. They're theologizing. They're saying, well, faith isn't mentioned, but they're, they're said they're righteous. So if they're actually righteous, they must live by faith. The only, the only way we're righteous before God is to trust in him, to believe in him. That's the only way. So Hebrews eleven seven then says in the, in the New Testament, by faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. As a lot of you know, faith and works are pitted against each other so frequently in the scriptures. There's a, a type of righteousness out there that says, righteousness comes from here, I can do it. That's righteousness by the flesh, the Bible says. There's another way of seeing it that says righteousness comes down from heaven and comes inside of us or 
um, saves us or dies for us in the form of a person. That's Jesus. That's the, that's the righteousness that is by faith, Philippians 3, uh, and many other places talk about. So, in other words, if, if, you, if this is all true, then we can look back and, at Noah and say, we got to be careful shrining this guy. He was not a good man. He was a God-centered man, which is very different. As, 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 he was a sinner as one whose every intention of his heart was only evil continually, but he still had faith. He believed in God. He put him first. He asked for help. He humbled himself. He laid down his weapons of rebellion and asked to be forgiven by the king. And God says, I favor you because of that place of your heart, because of that perspective. You are righteous and blameless in my eyes because you trust in me again. It's the reversal of what Satan wanted for humanity, remember? Back in the garden. Satan said, I want, what you should really do is do the opposite. You need yourselves. Be a good person. Pursue righteousness that's from in here. You can do it. Righteousness actually comes, uh, comes by faith. Not morality. So then to, to start to wrap this up, I want to read from John 5 here. This is uh, Jesus' words to try to help us understand timing. As, as we ask kind of afresh, going back to the macro a little bit, but asking, this is what God wants us to hear today, right? At, at Hiawatha, this is what he, the word he has for us. There is a command here. There is something to do. Whether you're a Christian or not, it's really the same message. But the timing is important. So John 5, Jesus talks. He's not talking about the days of Noah here. But look what he says just generally about kind of the era of salvation. He says, the hour is coming, but then he says, and is already here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of Man and those who hear will live. It's coming in the future physically, ultimately, but it's already starting to happen. It's already here at the same time. This is really helpful theology right here. It's not just future. So in the same way, the days of the Son of Man are like the days of Noah, as Jesus said earlier, we saw that. They are coming, they are yet future. When Jesus returns, the second flood will come. It won't be a literal flood, but it will be much worse. And yet, it's kind of already here. There are aspects of this story that are true right now. They're happening all around us. An ark is being built, an actual spiritual Jesus ark. And people are getting on, and people are laughing at it, saying there's no way it's ever going to rain. It's happening, you guys, right in this very room right now. Uh, some of you are getting on the ark. You're already on it, or you're laughing at the idea. You're not believing it. Um, and certainly in our city, if you just look at the world, right, that's what's happening. God's saying a storm is coming. Build an ark. And this, every time we preach the gospel, we're saying to someone, to ourselves, our friends, our non-Christian that we know, get on the, the ark. So it's here. So it's coming, Colossians 3.6 Colossians 3, says wrath is coming, so it's yet future. That's basically the same thing as saying flood is, is coming. Uh, Paul's warning the church here. And it's going to happen when we least expect it. Actually, uh, did you guys um, get woken up by that siren this past week? When is that, Tuesday? Wednesday? Wednesday? Like 6.15? Was it not? Was it Tuesday? Okay. We should figure this out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it really matters. No, it doesn't. 
Um, point is, it happened. So if you, if you didn't know, if you're not in Minneapolis, well, was it countywide? I, I asked this for service. I didn't figure this out, but I think it might have been Hennepin County. So it was more, yeah, more than um, Minneapolis. But anyway, so if you're not in Hennepin County, uh, there was the tornado sirens went off at 6:15. It was like I read some uh, blogger guy or some someone tweeted out or something. Uh, some weather guy. He just said, um, "Nope, no tornadoes out there, but get your butts out of bed." <laughs> You know, like that's what the siren is for. Wake up, Minneapolis. Hello. But um, so anyway, I, for me, it was kind of a moment of fear, honestly. I, I was woken up. I knew that there was no tornado out there because I knew the forecast, and I knew it was like upper 20s or whatever. It's like, well, what? Do they sound those things for terrorism? Or do they sound those things for, you know, bomb threats or something? I'm just trying to, in your 615, just barely out of a dream here, mind, you're trying to figure out in kind of a moment of, moment of fear until you kind of get up and realize, okay, it's, it's just an intern hit the wrong button or something, you know, but it, and I also watched this, uh, a couple days ago, I watched the series on the, uh, sorry, a documentary on the 89 World Series, have you guys seen this? Uh, it was the, um, I was too young to think, yeah, well, I, yeah, I don't know, I, di- I didn't watch it, but um, it was the, it's all California series, it was when the Giants and the A's played, game three in San Francisco, there was an earthquake. I totally forgotten about this. I think I had mem- remembered the story a little bit, but I, I had forgotten. And fascinating documentary, but they, they just interviewed person after person after person after person who, as you might expect, all of them in some fashion said, we just didn't expect an earthquake. <laughs> well, it's like, well, yeah, you know, I, I don't think anybody's thinking this is going to be, no one's thinking that, right? Everyone's completely and utterly shocked. It's the same with the end. Jesus is saying, the days of the Son of Man are like the days of Noah. All of a sudden, it started to rain. But Noah's family is already on the ark. There's no way to get in. No chance to repent. No chance to change your mind. No more second chances. God's patience has run out. Like the siren at 615, it's just going to happen. Like the earthquake at game three in 89 in San Francisco, it's just going to happen. And there's no chance to reverse it. or ch- It's just going to be upon us. People will be getting married, they'll be having good meals together, cooking out under the stars, having bonfires, you know, going to movies, having kids, uh, get, it says giving in marriage. It'll, people will be just doing normal, going to grocery, groceries, they'll be taking naps on their couch, mowing their lawn, you know, playing cards with their kids. It'll just be very normal stuff. No one's going to expect it. The trumpet sounds, Jesus is back. And the only thing that matters there is are you on the ark of the ark of Christ or not? Are you believing him, trusting him to forgive you of your sins? Are you casting yourself upon God and saying, save me, forgive me for rebelling against you? You know, in Genesis 6, God says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. In the New Testament, Jesus says at the Last Supper, this is my blood of the new covenant, my body of the new covenant. I'm going to break my body and shed my blood for you on a cross. That's the new way God covenants with people. This covenant, Genesis 6, typifies that one. I will establish my covenant with you. I will, I will draw near to you. I will save you. My covenant is get on the boat. That's the covenant, really. Get on the boat. There's no morality. There's no be a good person here. There's no, yeah, if you just, you got another year here of work. If you just work hard enough, then I'll give you the golden ticket. The covenant is get on the boat. The covenant is build the boat. The covenant is get on the boat and you will you'll be saved. In fact, um, salvation is really, if, you, if you're brand new to this, or even if you're not, it doesn't, doesn't matter. But especially if you're new to Christianity. 
Salvation is a lot more like just getting on a boat than it is doing a lot of good things for the world. Salvation is a lot more, if you're trying to understand it kind of metaphorically or give a picture to it, it's a lot more than just like, than, or as getting on a boat than it is being a great person. That's all that's going on here. God looks at an evil person, a wicked person who says, God save me, and says, get on the boat. That's my covenant with you. Isn't that incredibly freeing? And it's humbling. And for some of you, that's too offensive. And because of that message, you'll never get on because you think you're a good person. That will keep you off the boat because if faith gets you on, it's not just your sin that will keep you off, it's your good works that will keep you off. Because those are opposites, do you see? Those are, those are opposites. It's impossible to get on the ark if you don't think it's going to rain, if you think you know, you're not that bad a person, if you think you're, you know, you're doing a lot for the world. Check out my garden, they might, say. they might have said during that day, or whatever. Salvation is believing that Jesus took the flood for us. He was the Jonah who was thrown in the sea for us. He's the means by which wrath passes over us. He's the one pitching the door saying, I will die for you while you are saved. His grace saves us, you guys. He's the active party here over and over and over again, time and time again. He's the architect, the engineer, the door pitch sealer. He's the rememberer. He's the, you know, the guy who's controlling the flood. He's the plumber, essentially, or whatever it would be. He's the guy that recedes the waters. He's the one that makes the land dry, the, the, the wind blower. I mean, he's, he's, he's doing everything. The only thing he says, my covenant with you is believe in me. Get on the ark of Christ. It's all about Jesus all the time. On the right, that, that's when, you see, when you see Christ dying on the cross, that's the love of God for you. That, that's God remembering you. That's God sealing you into the ark of salvation. That's God making, making it so God's future wrath will pass over you. Will, will pass th- the stormy waters of his wrath will not be able to touch us. And we will all make it through because what he starts, he finishes. And he never loses one who's given to him. So rejoice and believe and repent and be baptized in light of it. And tell the world about this because, again, it could happen today. So let me pray and we'll close with the song. God, thank you so much uh, for today, for your grace and the gospel of, of um, Genesis 6 to 8, really. Uh, thank you for what you've done for us, for how you've saved, for how clearly you make it in all over the scriptures, but in this story, how much you're the hero, you're the initiator. Uh, there, there's no, if you want to follow a command here, it's get on the boat believe in Christ. That's the only command in this. Uh, the, the covenant you make with us is, is unavoidably grace-centered, God-centered. And so for sexually impure people like us, for wicked people, for people who have, have constant evil thoughts in our heart, violent people, all these list, listed things we see in the chapter, that's really good news. Uh, that the way you're battling sin is not destroying us, but by laying that on your son the man on the cross who died for us, who took the flood for us, who pitched us in and died that we might survive. Uh, God, your love, your intimate involvement with Noah is a picture of your intimate involvement with every, every stage of our salvation. Um, God, and thank you that that's the case. There's no way I can just, I'll just speak for myself. There's no way I would be saved. There's no way I'd be saved if you weren't intimately involved with every aspect of my salvation.
I, just, I know that about my wicked, hard-hearted, easy, for, easily forgetful, rebellious, it's all about me heart. I need you, God, to pitch me in that ark. And I pray that for this church here today, these people, wherever they are spiritually, save them and save them afresh. And uh, help us to pass through on dry land. In Christ's name, amen.